Hello, everyone. Hello, and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, the podcast. Yeah, with me, Which... Joram, and you, Tegan. I think yeah, it's we, me, Tegan. We rarely say our names. Yeah, um, they don't even know our names, though. I mean, what do you want to do, stalk us? Like, yeah, We are it's... voices, disembodied voices. Just <laughs> deal with it. We might be in your head. Who knows? Maybe we're in your headphones. Maybe we're in your head. It's been it's a long fine. time since we spoke last time, Tegan. <laughs> <laughs> About 24 hours. <laughs> So yesterday we recorded the podcast and then we had some technical difficulties, which means <coughs> we lost half of our podcast. Um, yeah. And actually we have a system where I record my tracks on my side, Yoram records his tracks on his side, and then they can get put together. And somehow both of us lost both of the tracks, so we don't really know. <coughs> yeah. Some magic was, happened. It was one of these cases where you, yeah, lots of bad things come together at the same time and then you just lose everything. So now I added another <laughs> layer of backups um, just so that uh, one day this one will fail too. Um, yeah. But today I hope it won't. <clears throat> so this podcast is now brought to you by Yoram's Technical Competencies <laughs> because if it was just me involved, you would have nothing, guys. So, yay, Yoram. Yeah, and yay, Tegan, for putting up with recording the same stuff we said yesterday <laughs> another time today. Um, so <laughs> I'm only putting it up with it on the, the proviso that like every time I say something, you laugh as if it's the first time you've heard me say it, and it's hilarious and witty and, and brilliant. So yeah, I like that. Exactly. Well done. Now I finally know how much of it is absolutely prepared and uh, <laughs> non-genuine when we talk, how much of it is just like written down jokes. Um <laughs> Actually, I have several writers who write all of my... No, I would have to be a lot funnier for that to be true. <laughs> yes, I would be, like, change the people that you're paying to, to write your jokes then. Um, so just, like, as an aside, I, I, I've been trying internet dating for the first time, and I am using cheese jokes, <laughs> and I think they're going down very well. What is a cheese like, joke? What does the cheese say when it looks in the mirror? Hello, me. <laughs> Uh, how are you using them in the dating? Is it your bio or is that like what the first thing you say when somebody swipes right? Um, just like in all conversations, like all conversations are cheese jokes. If it can't be conversed <laughs> as a cheese joke, then it's not worth my time. <laughs> so, I mean, honestly, like that's my favorite joke of all time is the Halloumi joke. But it's also, I mean, a lot of jokes, you know, they're not necessarily clean joke. And that is actually a clean joke. But you also can't tell it to a child because a child does not know what Halloumi is. So yeah. it's it's one of these like jokes where it's just, it's just perfect <laughs> in every way. And children can't have it. They're not good enough to have it. And they have to be old enough to understand Halloumi before they can have that joke. <laughs> I think my favorite cheese joke is the alternate lyrics to Sweet Dreams. Um, Sweet dreams are made of cheese. Who am I to disagree? Wow, I chatter the like world six, and the seven, eight cheese. People just, like, Everybody's from the looking for Stilton. Okay, I think we're getting um, copyright infringement now. I think yeah, I think this is a swipe left, isn't it? <laughs> Is that that's bad, right? <laughs> I don't know. I, I haven't tried it yet. I just know it from like uh, pop cultural references. Um, swipe left, swipe right. Yeah. <laughs> so how how was your Christmas break? I think that was the thing that we talked about, which, which feels so far ago now. My Christmas break was in Australia. Um, it was it was a bit stressful. Like going to Australia over Christmas is always crazy stressful. But I had like a great time with some of my family and all of my friends who came out to meet me. I mean. 
like I go there for only a few days in the Christmas period and the fact that some of my friends and like my cousins and stuff could make the time to see me despite the fact that it's right in the middle of the festive period they have their own family and they have their own loved ones to see that was really great um and I also had the wedding of one of my friends who I've known since I was 11 um and her wedding was beautiful and also I saw a lot of people at the wedding who I haven't seen for years and years and years and that was also really cool like mm-hmm. I hung with hang hung with a very nerdy crowd in school I think um we were pretty lucky because we had like the boy and girl nerds and the girl nerds and we sort of had a little click and there was no I don't know you always see these American movies where like the nerdy kids get bullied a lot but we never had that we just had like this critical mass of cool people and it's really lovely to see like 10 15 years later how those cool people are still cool and still nerdy and have kind of like grown up so that was a really lovely experience but also Australia is on fire right now which is a bit stressful a bit crazy um I mean you were on the side of the country that's not as affected right yeah that's definitely true so my family is is all okay um and it's actually kind of weird that on my side of the country so I'm from the west the discussion was mostly about the politics of the fire as opposed to the emergency of the fire um and actually today in in England there was just an announcement that David Attenborough came out to make a statement saying hey Mm. this fire that's happening if you want proof of climate like you want one of the signs of climate warning something is climate um change something real this is it the fire is happening pay attention now Australia is burning we have to do something about this um yeah and unfortunately Australia's government is one of the worst in the world for dealing with climate change and acknowledging that we have a role in this and that we need to fix it. So one possible silver lining could be that this makes us have more action. That's really the only good that could come out of something so catastrophic. But unfortunately, yeah, both of our major political parties are not really interested in climate action. Um, our industry is very strongly uh, run on mining and fossil fuels and, and, and things like that. So I don't feel super positive about it. It's just a very, very sad event. Um, mm. But hopefully there will be some change in the near future. And at least, at, at the very least, there are some discussions now, which I don't think were happening as much in Australia previously. So I think that's... Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, anyway. I, I hope so too, that at least something good will come of it from this like catastrophe. Um, yeah. I also missed out on meeting lots of like usual friends and family um, during the years. Uh, between the years um, because I went to Congress um, which is an event in in this this time in Leipzig um, uh, where lots and lots of hackers and nerds come together and do hacker nerd stuff and these are all kinds of nerds so it's all based like the the foundation members were all about um, like computer stuff um, hardware and software hacking but it turned into so much more now I think this year were like about 17,000 tickets sold Um, it's a four day event and you have people there that um, do like food hacking and people that do um, like I Last year there were some plant stuff. This year there, there wasn't like an indoor plant garden, but I think it's also due to the fact that it's inside the the um, congress halls in Leipzig, and um, these are very dark. So I think plants suffer there. So I can understand how <laughs> you get a tilated plants. I love a tilated plant. <laughs> yeah. It's my favorite um, topic. And yeah, but then lock pickers. I learned how to lock pick, and actually today my my <laughs> lock picking set that I ordered arrived today. Um, no, so no locks are safe from me now. Uh, and yeah, we went there with. Do you the ever baby. think that you have too many hobbies? 
I do have too many hobbies and uh, I have to downsize like equipment that I buy for my hobbies. But you do do that actually. You you buy stuff, you try it, you you kind of get it, and then you you do downsize. You know? uh, I like, I don't downsize this is a discussion as much. For you to have with your wife, maybe, and your as much as I household. should. But this time, yeah, you took like you went with your wife and you took the baby as well. Yeah, and it was a really good event for a baby as well because um, the, the beautiful thing about babies are small, so for lock picking, that's really ideal. Like, yeah, that's what you want, tiny actually. hands, they're so good yeah. with the with the locks. Um, <laughs> and um, and yeah, it's just a very family friendly event, which what you which you wouldn't assume, I guess, when you just hear the words like a hacker congress. Um, but there's like a massive kid space. It's a huge ball pit that gets sorted every night by the parents that hang out there when the kids go to bed and like the nerds go into the ball pit and they sort it by color. And so in the morning <laughs> you have like quadrants of the different colored balls oh, no. and then the kids jump in and everything's a mess again. Um, but it was great. Um, Yuna had a lot of fun going around there, crawling around there. Yuna is the baby. Yeah. Yuna is mm-hmm. the baby. Um, <laughs> And I mean, he's a toddler now. He's <coughs> he's he's not quite toddling, but he's not really. But he's just trying. He's on the on the verge of toddling. Um, so <laughs> still a baby, but not for that much longer, I guess. But yeah, but that was fun. Um, but so when all my family and friends uh, came to town, I left town. Like it's it begins <laughs> on the twenty seventh, I think, uh, and the twenty sixth already. We we uh, went to Leipzig. Um, so yeah, just in this like brief period during the year where sort of everybody touches base and goes home um i went away and so i also missed out on lots of like old friends um but most of them i see at other occasions so it's not that sad it's not that i moved to like to a different continent um uh so it's it's different (laughs) yeah um and now we're back we're back and we have some i mean i have some more sort of end of yeary stuff to talk Uh, about yeah 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 yeah, I wanted to mention quickly um, at I think on the first of January actually, but theoretically on the end of, at the end of last year, I just wasn't organized enough. Um, we wrote a blog post about what we thought were some of the cool things that happened in the plant science field in 2019. Um, we'd love if you go check it out. Let us know what we got wrong and what you think we missed. But we talk about things like obviously the development of new CRISPR t- technology, a lot of discussion that's happening about GMOs based on that. Um, some good news involved in that. So, just um, a few years before I wrote, a few days before I wrote the post, sorry, the Philippines announced that it was going to accept golden rice as safe in the country. So that's a really nice story um, for GM superfoods. Um, we talked about alternative crops. Um, we talked, of course, about the fires that happened in Brazil earlier in the year, and of course, which are happening in Australia and which will continue to happen in Australia and in other parts of the world, presumably, for many months, months and years to come. Um, we talked about planting trees and our big issues of diversity in science and um, a few things like that. So go and read the post. Let us know what you think. And if you have any comments on what we wrote or if you yourself think, hey, there's something that you want to hear more about in 2020. If you have ideas, if you have a favorite plant or a favorite topic or a favorite author or whatever, hit us up. Let us know. Um, we're looking for new ideas. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do our homework for us. <laughs> yeah. But it's really always very welcome from us um, if you have um, cool topics that you... And especially if you're a young researcher who's yeah. passionate about their topic and, you know, is just starting out and wants to promote their work, we would love to hear from you. Like, honestly, the guys who are established, they've got their shit fairly sorted. Like, we want to hear from the young people and, and the up-and-comers. 
Yeah, and uh, one of these, uh, I don't know actually how, how young he is, but one of the big uh, stories for us this uh, beginning of this year is a paper that uh, came out now in Nature Food um, where we sort of, I don't know if we took part in the early sort of um, reporting about it, but at least we stood at the sidelines and watched with um, great enthusiasm uh, what was going on. And I'm talking about the paper from Ratan Chopra about Pennycress um, that was just now published. Um, and we talked yeah, about so the paper and with him actually in, on the podcast, we had an interview about a year ago, a little bit less than a year ago. Yeah, it was actually one of our pretty early um, blog posts. So I think I read something in the Plant Journal. They had kind of a spotlight on Pennycress um, based on a different paper. And I found out about Pennycress from this for the first time and I was super excited to hear about this this new organism. And we wrote a blog post about it. And then um, I think the author, Ratan, actually reached out to us and he said, hey, you've written about this, but we actually have more stuff that's happening. There's a paper on bioarchives, so it's not been published yet in a peer review situation, but we've done the work. Um, and he was really kind and came to talk to us on the podcast, as Yoram said, and we got to hear some really cool behind the scenes stuff from him about the effort that they put into domesticating um, Pennycress. And so we got the podcast and we also have the blog post. And as Yoram just said, now he's published in Nature Food. So we're super happy for him because at the time he was looking for somewhere to publish the paper. And this is just really amazing. And he was so kind and generous with his time to talk to us. So yeah, yay. Well done. Yeah. Well done to the entire group. It's not just a single person's effort. It's an entire group of people, but really yeah. nice work. And yeah, it's something that I'm excited to see in the future is this development of new crops and look at existing species of plants that we have and how we can use them to get more food and fuel for the population as it grows. So I think it's a really interesting field as well as being a cool individual paper and topic that is there. Yeah. And another like last bit of celebration for this little introduction is it's a year of plants Ooh. and prepareds. Woo! Yeah, yes. Uh, we've been doing this for a year now, and I'm quite happy about the things that we have achieved and the the stuff that we've done. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm we sure we got reminded by Facebook or by I got reminded by LinkedIn actually. Um, <laughs> I had not realized. Uh, yeah, I saw that. Date. I could congratulate congratulate you on mm. your. Um, what was a professional milestone a professional anniversary or something was nah. the framing and there was like a predefined message that I could just click on and I did that I on LinkedIn I just communicate through the things that LinkedIn suggests to me that I say instead of actually talking to people because if if it's wow. built in the system then I'm going to use it <laughs> just like these text <laughs> blocks <laughs> amazing <Yoram. laughs> yeah all right, shall we get on with the podcast episode? Yeah, let's let's uh, talk some science, if I find, find my mouse cursor. Let's talk some science! science. Yeah! <laughs> it's the paper of the week. And this week, it's a paper that I chose. Um, I sent it to Tegan. Um, she read it on a plane, isn't it? <laughs> Didn't you? I read it on a 14-hour plane from Perth to... No, from Singapore to Berlin in which I was seated on a very low-cost budget airline scoot. And I was lucky enough to have the seat at the very back of the plane where you cannot recline the seat. So somewhere in my period of 14 hours of not sleeping, I read this paper. <laughs> so, um, And I also um, did have that much time. Um, that is to I... say apologies <clears throat> in advance if we screw anything up. Yeah. <clears throat> but so... Um, enough apologies, let's dive into it. We're talking about a paper uh, published in Current Biology uh, in December 
2019, so last year. Modifications during early plant development promote the evolution of nature's most complex woods. Um, it's from Joyce G. Cherry et al. Uh, from uh, Pennsylvania. I you you had the institute Penn State from Penn, I think State. Penn State is the university. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, as my little introduction for this paper, um, I want to talk a little bit about what, about secondary growth, which is the growth of tree stems. So when we shall we discuss what primary growth is first? Yeah. So yeah, primary growth is the, the regular growth, like the the normal growth, the the thing that we think about first when we think about growth. It's like the growth of the stem upwards. Um, it's the growth of the leaves and the flowers and everything. That's primary growth. And uh, secondary growth is then um, the the growth in width or girth as <laughs> girth 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 yeah we had this big dis- I mean yeah <laughs> hilarious discussions about girth for hours literally hours on the previous podcast recording but these are going to be the lost tapes of Yarm and Tegan and yeah you'll never get to hear about it um, but so when the trees grow in in girth, um, in girth. that's secondary g- growth so they add layers outside on the tree stem. Um, and become wider instead of taller. Uh, and this is basically like what you think of when you think of tree growth, like this, the stem of the tree. You have this idea of rings growing where there's kind of each year a new ring grows and it's getting thicker and thicker and thicker and more girthy and that more girthy is the secondary growth hitting, like coming in. Yeah. Um, and what I didn't know is that this circular additional growth is just on the outside of the stem and it also means that um, all the living tissue is just on the outside of the stem. So the core of the stem is just uh, dead um, tissue. Um, it still has a function. It's, it's a xylem, so it transports water from the roots upwards. But uh, the xylem is uh, dead tissue. It's just... Um, yeah, it's, it's like a straw, basically. Yeah, yeah, just like a straw, like a dried out tissue. <clears throat> and only the outermost layers are actually the living ones. And the important thing here is that there is this zone, um, uh, this specialized tissue in there, the vascular cambium, that is responsible for the secondary growth. Um, because it's it sits uh, on the outside of the tree, um, or just under the bark and it grows to the outside it grows a uh, new phloem secondary phloem that's the tissue that transports the sugar from the leaves downwards to the roots um, and other metabolites and things um, so that's the inner bark and then it grows to the inside the secondary uh, xylem which is the the wood um, which transports the water um, and this is the, the defining tissue that yeah makes up the secondary growth that without that you can't have the secondary growth and it has a specific, um, it's a very coordinated process. And it, uh, what it represents, it's a basic bulb plan, um, which is... Which I'm not sure, like, this was in the paper. And when I read it, I was like, is is that an English word? Do we have, I believe the authors, I don't think they're wrong, but I don't know that I would have recognized that word if I had not been in Germany. That yeah. was like to build in, in yeah. German, right? So yeah, um, we go to the Baumarkt to get our... Um, yeah, the, the Bauplan is the... Now I forgot the English word for it. Um, your construction... Yeah, building plan is like... Essentially. Yeah, the, yeah the, the plan blueprint. is like your your printout of your construction map or whatever the word blueprint, is. Huh? The imprint, blueprint, yeah, the blueprint. A Bauplan <laughs> is bu- blueprint. Yeah. Um, so I don't know why they didn't use the word blueprint, but Bauplan. Um, so the, the basic pl- bow plan that you have with these um, secondary growth is this idea of the circular rings that we kind of already discussed. So mostly when you think of secondary growth, you think of a really basic tree trunk shape where it's 
pretty roughly round and it gets bigger and bigger, but it stays round as it gets bigger and bigger. Yeah, but uh, this bow plant can be modified. Um, there's different species that have modified their bow plant to the point that um, they grow in different shapes. And it's not round anymore. Hmm? Yeah. It's not round anymore. Yeah, it's not round anymore. And one of these plants uh, are lianas, uh, so these tropical vines that hang uh, from branches in rainforests. Um, it's like the Tarzan kind of fine yeah yeah the, yeah that's, that's what i'm imagining yeah, yeah. so um and because there's like humans that were um raised Swinging by from tree apes tree. or wolves i think i think he was raised by monkeys he must because he swings like a monkey right yeah or was he by the the panther and the bear i no, don't that's know that's mowgli that's mowgli that's the jungle book i think ah uh, yeah i don't know yeah Tarz- in I- any case i think T- yeah. Tarzan, maybe the gorillas or whatever. Anyway, there's like a, a he swings a wild human that swings on these Leaping lianas from tree to tree. They need to have special properties um, that are different from other uh, from most other plants, um, mm. which is uh, things like tensile strength and flexibility, and they have to have to have the ability to climb up other trees. Um, and to achieve that, they have a very special cross-sectional geometry. So if you cut across them, they're not just round. They have lots of different shapes um, that help them to have these physical properties. I think I put strong but bendy or something like that as, as what was required. So Yeah. The, the round, that basic bow plan of um, roundness just doesn't give very much flexibility as far as moving in different directions. So. Yeah, you need different shapes. And so, in this paper, they chose a model organism uh, or a model gen- uh, genus uh, Paulinia, which is a type of tropical liana, um, because this one grows in the individual species within that genus um, grow in different variants um, that can be uh, very basic round stems to stems with much more variation, um, and therefore they are comparable, but at the same time um, different enough that you can look at different aspects there. And um, that's also the beginning of the results, what they did. They took 18 different species um, from the same genus and they sampled them at different stages. So at the primary growth, when they're just two millimeters wide, at the onset of secondary growth, when they're four millimeters wide, and during mature secondary growth, uh, when they are more than four millimeters wide. And what they did then is they did cross-sections and microscopy on them. And they use kind of different um, chemical stains where they could see the different tissues within those um, sections. So they did a stain for lignin, which is the more woody tissue. And they also did a stain for cellulose, which is kind of the the cell walls, I think. Um, And actually, if you are interested in this, you should really go and check out the paper because the cross sections themselves are quite beautiful. It's really scientific art. And you can see these kind of pinky, purpley colored um, cross sections of wood in different shapes, which shows really clearly the different growth styles um, that they had so yeah they had these 18 species and they did see different growth styles they weren't all having the same basic bowel plan they had different bowel plans and in fact there were six different types of bowel plan and I think they mentioned in the paper that only two of those had been described before for this genus so they basically found at least four new bowel plans in their investigations yeah and they categorized them in um, like and categorized categorized them well and descri- uh, described their features so there's a regular one type that is just a, a round primary growth that then extends in a round uh, secondary growth to give just a round cross section which is sort of the regular type that you would expect um, from most um, other tree species um, as well there was also a second type of regular which ended up looking round 
but started with kind of a more low primary body. So it sort of then develops into more roundness at later stages. And um, then starting from a similar point um, is the, the next type that's called phloem wedges. It also starts from a sort of star shape uh, during primary growth. But then when it continues to grow, um, only the outer tissue um, uh, shapes uh, or forms around shape. But there are these lobed uh, wedges of the phloem that you see in the cross section. So the um, internal tissue has a different organization than from the total outside shape of it. Yeah, and these are now the ones where we're getting away from that that basic bowel plan. So the regular one and two, they're basically round. And these are the ones which are kind of associated with this weird twisty tensile strength and like different opportunities. And the authors also mentioned in their introduction that there's some other ideas about some advantages of having different um, shapes. So there might be some kind of immunity and health responses, which could also be helpful for the plant without for not having the basic bowel plan. Um, yeah, so the, what are we up to? Number four, the fourth yep. type was lobed xylem. So then it had this really deeply lobed form at the early stages and then it developed, um, phloem wedges in between the xylem lobes and these like rays, um, and an angular pith. So I, I think you should go and have a look at the paper if you're interested in these different shapes because for me, describing them is, is quite tricky to understand what they look like, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's why also I think we should summarize the next two, which is the compound and the successive cambia types. Um, also because we can't describe them at all. Yeah, because they, the compound one is like multiple, it looks like multiple stems attached to each other. Um, uh, because the, And the successive has an almost like matryoshka doll kind of like bits inside bits one, right? Yeah. It's got this kind of weird, like it looks, it looks wrong somehow. It doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, and with that they already had some interesting results because as we as we said four of these types were unknown before and they could uh, just extend the proper characterization of um, these lianas but um, they went a step further and they also wanted to figure out uh, how is the primary growth linked to the secondary growth is there a link and uh, what is needed to get to these um, very special secondary shapes um of, of the secondary growth uh, and f to analyze that they uh, co uh, combined a microscopy data set uh, with a phylogenetic uh, tree so from all these species they could then construct a phylogenetic tree to um, put them on a map on an evolutionary time scale to say when did a certain species diverge and which features do they have in common um, and based on that then they could do an in-depth analysis to figure out which uh, which link exists between the primary growth and the secondary growth. So the phylogenetic tree is basically just looking usually at certain genes and seeing based on that how similarly genetically related two organisms are. So if you had a phylogenetic tree of like mammals, the chimpanzee would be closer to the humans um, and the bonobos and that would be further away from like the dolphins and I don't know, rats or something. So it gives you an idea of how how distantly related things are. And uh, during this an analysis, I found that first there had to be a change in the primary growth um, that would then allow um, for special features to evolve in a secondary growth. So there's a clear link between these two things um, because it could also be possible that you have a basic primary growth and then on top of that, you get um, a sort of unusual secondary growth. Um, but they could link, um, link these two very well and show that they are in a sequential order. Um, and with that, they could help to understand further how different tree shapes and different structures of the trunk um, are formed or of the stem more uh, are formed during evolution. And I think that's also the, the main conclusion now of the paper, um, the, the new types of stem that I described and this link of primary to secondary growth. 
Yeah, so if you're interested, go and check it out. It's Cherry et al. in Current Biology from December last year. The title is Modifications During Early Plant Development Promote the Evolution of Nature's Most Complex Woods. And with that, we move on to... Yeah, so I think it's my turn this week. And I once again cheated because I'm always looking for a favorite plant at the very last minute. <laughs> but this time I was very, very lucky because, as I mentioned, I was doing my homework on the plane on the way home um, from Singapore. But while I was in Singapore, I had the amazing opportunity to go and look at the cloud forests in the gardens by the bay. So if you haven't been to Singapore recently, I guess about 10 years ago, they built this amazing gardens by the bay, which just has all of these beautiful, beautiful plants. And um, a part of it is two very large um, kind of greenhouse, but it's not even a greenhouse, it's like an ecosystems. Um, and one of them is called the Flower Dome. That's kind of okay, I would say. It's It's got um, a specialized environment inside, which is mostly more mediterranean towards alpine european climate so i think it's very cool if you come from the singapore region because it has plants that you wouldn't normally see in singapore but for us in europe it has a lot of european plants so it's, it's less thrilling but they also have the cloud forest which is this huge grandiose structure with all of the most beautiful basically anything that somebody who likes indoor plants and any millennial plant lovers dream so tons of begonias and all of these leafy greens and then there's a section where you turn the corner and it's just all of these pitcher plants um and that's basically where i stopped and i thought you know what i'm gonna do a pitcher plant that's gonna be my favorite plant of the week um so i'm talking today about pitcher plants the reason being because i saw them in singapore and then also i was doubly lazy and i thought hey Let's just do a thematic favorite plant like we did during Christmas where we just went for mistletoe and went for, um, I don't know, what cinnamon and things like that. Um, and I was looking up which plants might be associated with the new year. And because I was in Singapore when I typed which plants are associated with the new year, it said which ones are associated with lunar new year, which is anyway much more apt right now because I think this is going to come out on Friday and maybe the next Saturday is already lunar new year, whereas we're like a month away from the um, January 1 new year. So I found some bullshit listicle on the internet. It said, here are the plants that are associated with Lunar New Year. And one of them, lo and behold, was the pitcher plant. And the listicle told me that pitcher plants are highly regarded for Lunar New Year because they look like money bags and therefore they're considered lucky and prosperous. Mm. Um, if anybody's from a culture which celebrates Lunar New Year... I, I'm not claiming this is true. You can call us up or <laughs> yes. call in and complain about this. I'm blaming the listicle. Um, it was not on a reputable site. So <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Dodgy but I chose side it because... in the back alleys of the internet. <laughs> exactly. I chose it because I wanted to do this plant. Um, and yeah, they're just beautiful. Yeah. So if you don't know what a picture plant is, the picture isn't picture as in the thing you look at. It's like a picture, which is a jug. And it's these carnivorous plants which have these jug structures hanging off them. And the jug structures contain some sort of liquid. They have a little trapdoor at the, the top. And basically there's an opening and bugs and sometimes even small like amphibians fall in, get stuck in the juices and basically get eaten by the plants. So they are flesh-eating plants, which is always pretty cool, I would say. Yeah. Um, 
The one I was particularly interested in was a species of Nepenthes, which is the pitcher plant genus called Nepenthes aristolochoides. Choides. I don't know. Aristocroides? I, I don't know. Ar- Aristolochoides. Aristolo- Aristolochoides. Aristolochoides. Yeah. Anyway, this jumped out for me for several reasons. And the first is that the reason it has its very difficult Latin name is actually because it is supposed to resemble, that's the oides part of the Aristolochoides, <laughs> it's supposed to <laughs> resemble um, the Aristolochoid which uh, the Aristolochia, sorry, which is a different plant that we've also featured on our favorite plants list. It's the Dutchman's Pipe. It's this really cool plant that Yoram and I saw a couple of months ago in the Berlin Botanical Gardens. Yoram is going to write a note on the podcast now to put a photo of that in the show notes. You can check it out. But apparently this Nepenthes, which is a pitcher plant, has its name because it resembles another flower, mm-hmm. which is... I don't know, probably just an example of the fact that Latin naming is also kind of stupid sometimes as well, because yeah, that's, that's not super logical. Like, oh, you'll have to have seen this other thing to know that this is that thing that's kind of like that other thing. Like, Yeah, with that complicated name, I wondered why didn't they just call it like Steve or something? Because if it's anyway, just <laughs> like something different, then take an easy word um, to describe that instead. Yeah, so Nepenthes Steve is a tropical <clears throat> pitcher plant. It's endemic to Sumatra, which is an island um, in Indonesia, and it grows at quite high ele- elevations, so like on the mountains, about 2,000 meters high. And the special thing about it, and the reason that I chose it as my favorite plant, apart from just the difficult, difficult name, is that it has a really weird pitcher. So most of these pitcher plants, they basically, as I said, are a jug. <laughs> And then the opening is the top of the jug, as you can imagine with a normal jug. Yeah. But this guy... Yeah, I have a picture has, here. It looks different. You have a picture. Yeah. I, I, it does look different. Yeah, it looks very different because it doesn't have the opening on the top. It has the opening sort of on the side. It looks like, I don't know, um, a sort of a balloon where you have on on a, one of the vertical sides, you have a hole in it with a lid on top of it. Um we discussed already that it looks a little bit like a guy in a hoodie or a person in a hoodie. Um, yeah. Where you just see... So you it. imagine like the face is the opening of the the, um, the picture yeah, plant, Yeah, like basically. one of these very thick, um, warm hoodies um, and you pull the <laughs> string so you just have like this tiny narrow opening where you can just stick your nose out. Um, this is what this looks like. Um, and yeah, and that's a little bit unusual, right? Because usually you want the insects to fall in there. So why is there so much space on above the hole? Yeah, so this one actually has a, a very interesting feature, which is shared by maybe a couple of other species in the Nepenthes genus, which is that the the domed part, so the, 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 the juggy part of the picture, is actually a little bit translucent. And these patches of translucency allow sunlight to come through the dome and basically illuminate the inner part of the picture, which makes it glow. And so then you have to have the the opening on the side that you can get this back glow effect. And as it turns out, that black back glow effect actually attracts certain bugs. So they've even done some real experimentation where they've tried um, blocking basically the light that can go in to glow up this picture. And if they use a certain type of filter that prevents um, the wavelength of light that flies can see um, and they can no longer see the light because of the right filter, they don't go in anymore. So it kind of shows that if there is this light coming into the picture, this glowing is actually making the flies 
come in. So something about the light attracts flies and of course improves the meal opportunities for this Nepenthes, this pitcher plant. So that's why it's kind of got this special morphology and yeah, a very special feature. Unfortunately, the downside of this is that when anything is special, humans can't be allowed to have it. So as it turns out, the the weirdness of the shape, of course, makes this Nepenthes Steve, as we're now calling it, a collector's item. Um, and unfortunately, I think it's critically endangered. Yeah, it's, it's critically <coughs> endangered because collectors go and try to take it and, of course, damage the native population. So if you do see Steve in the wild, leave it alone. Um, this is why we can't have nice yeah. things. This is why people can't have nice things. But it's it's just a really cool plant. It looks really amazing. Go and have a look at some of the pictures. Yeah, we'll um, put one in the show notes. Um, that way you can see how strange and beautiful this picture is. Yeah, and the final thing is, which actually comes up at the end of the Wikipedia article on this species, um, they have a picture of the a picture of the picture, um, a picture of the pitch plant with an unopened upper picture. And I also saw these in the cloud forest in Singapore and I'd never seen it before. So they have these little lids, but of course, as the the flower or this, this not flower, the picture develops, it first starts off with a closed lid and it's only during development that it actually gets to the point where it kind of bursts open. And I hadn't seen that before. And that was kind of cool to see this different developmental stage of the pitcher plant picture. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, then we can move on to diversity in the class. Science. And this week it's me um, presenting a non-male researcher from the world. Non-white male. Mm-hmm. Sorry, non-white male. <laughs> <laughs> um, non-white male. <clears throat> A non-Y male. They can be male. They just can't be Y male. Like, okay. we're not against males. It's just we don't want to only do okay. Y males. Non-Y yes. males. Uh, and non-cis Y males? That's that's included in the Y. This is why we're using the word Y and not white. It's, like, included as just, like, that's... I think it's too complicated. We yeah, need- I'm not... I'm not, Like, I try to understand gender studies very well. Like, I... I take them very seriously, but I don't. I'm not very on on top of the vac- vocabulary. Like I make mistakes there, so forgive me. Um, anyway, here I want to work. Out. No, also there is, there isn't the vocabulary. This is something that we've made up because there isn't something. So we, our, our point is, it's, it's not about white men. It's just about like not supporting the, not only representing the people who have the most power in their society. So yeah, in a in China, it's not going to be a white man. It's going to be a Chinese straight man of yeah you know with all the privilege so this is kind of our the discussion we want to have um yes <laughs> maybe just put a note there and cut all of that out <laughs> no i think um i think uh, it's 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 honest like it's something that's new we're developing it um like not us personally but we as a society as people who take care of this we're still learning and building language to talk about these things and talk about them in a proper way and us as plant biologists we are just not deep enough in there to at least for me to properly with with certainty use the right terminology um but i mean very well it's the best i can say about my intentions I mean, the problem for me is like I, the point of us doing this diversity thing is we don't, we're not trying to be exclusive, but the way we're phrasing it is an exclusive way. So mm-hmm. the way we have to say is like non-Y males, but the aim is not to exclude a certain group. It's to discuss the group that has already been excluded by history and even by, by current power structures. So we want to discuss the ones who are already excluded, but this is just a very, yeah, 
It's chunky. It's hard to explain. <laughs> yes. Anyway. Anyway. On with the show. <laughs> on with the show. On with. Um, Guys, whoever actually knows about this, please tell us how we <coughs> should say this in a way that is inclusive and makes us be less dick. Yes. Yes, please. Um, I want to present um, the life and work of Dame Caroline Dean. Um, she's born in 1957. She's 62 years now. Um, and she's a British plant researcher um, who works at the John Innes Center. And I found her because um, she was awarded the FEBS or FEBS EMBO Women in Science Award in 2015. Um, and to this occasion, she gave an interview um, that uh, yeah caught my attention and uh, that I read through. So a little bit about her professional work. She um, was involved. She she worked in in the UK first, and then um, moved to the US to work in a biotech startup in the early days of under understanding of of genes, where methods were very new and knowledge was. Uh, um, not as present as today. So I think it was in the 80s that she, she worked in, in the US in this biotech company um, <clears throat> and basically doing basic research there because so little was known. And then she returned to uh, the UK, to the John Innes Center, where she studied Arabidopsis and um, the process of vernalization. So the flowering after cold, after winter. Um, which is a process that she uh, says in the interview what she found all, always very fascinating um, and wanted to understand what is it that drives plants to um, yeah to f uh, to have this shoot and um, formed and to flower after after experiencing the cold how do they actually sense the cold what happens inside the cell um, and she's a big proponent of using Arabidopsis for just that um, because uh, the Arabidopsis is such an amazing model organism in her eyes. Um, it's it's we talked about this also on the blog already, like the many advantages of Arabidopsis. And in the interview, she uh, quotes that uh, back in the like late eighties, early nineties, when there was this this hype of Arabidopsis starting, or um, it was on on the edge of starting, and um, the there were the first tools. There was like the PCR was established and a better understanding of genes. Everybody was like, mm -hmm. "Let's study crops with this." Like we have to go on on. You can't eat a rabbit Yeah, we have to go on maize, on wheat, on rice uh, immediately with these new tools. And she said the 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 word back then was that if you study four years of Arabidopsis work, um, you know more about wheat than if you would do four years of work in wheat, um, which proved. Uh, which proved to be true because Arabidopsis, the generation times are shorter, so you can do more experiments in that time, but also the entire structure of the genome is so much easier than in wheat. And therefore... Wheat is a hexaploid, so it has like six, three different genes. Yeah. Yeah, six, six, three pairs, so six in total. When did we even sequence wheat? It's quite recently, I right? I think it's fairly recently that um, the full wheat genome was, I think, in the last two years that we have an assembled... A proper wheat genome um, which shows like how complicated it is to study this especially yeah, in the early days when you have like you have no maps you have no knowledge or uh, yet um about like the genes and the structure of the genome and um, then studying immediately a plant that has uh, uh two or uh, three pairs of of gene copies that and also it's just huge <clears throat> so I'm, I'm looking at an article now on the atlantic so arabidopsis has 135 million base pairs dna letters and bread wheat has 16 billion yeah 
ridiculous. <coughs> so she was very right to to promote Arabidopsis research, um, and a lot of the knowledge for Arabidopsis has been proven now to be transferable to other plants. Um, so. That's why it's still an amazing model organism that we use today. Um, so that that was the main part about her professional work, which was already quite interesting. She was very involved in the understanding of the floral repre uh, repressor FLC, um, which is an important um, yeah player in the whole role of flowering. Um, But in the interview, she also talked a little bit about advice that she has for young researchers, especially for women. And um, I found that quite interesting um, to think about the way she, she looks at things. Um, so her her approach that she mentions in the interview is to first jump and then think. Um, and what she means by that in the, in, in the interview is, uh, as she explains, that... Um, There's a tendency or there's a, the, the risk of being put off of the whole research career by looking at the issues that you might face when you become a group leader or a professor or like so at some point in your career as a as a woman um, you you will face problems but if you Mm -hmm. uh, internalize these problems very early on and that stops you from even starting your career um, you lose out um, and her approach was to just like take it in small steps first do your your PhD and then uh, work as a postdoc and then think in these small steps and take the problems as they come instead of worrying about the things that are far ahead in the future and um, being blocked in the present by things that are yet to come and I have to say I've actually heard that from a different source that there is this tendency, and I don't know, I haven't seen any studies on it, but there was a belief that this source had that there's a tendency of women to opt out before they need to opt out. So they have this thing of, yeah, well, in five years' time, I want to do this, and in 10 years' time, I might want this, and I know how difficult it is because of some institutional, like, some problems we have with, it. yeah, whatever of the reasons, and then they opt out for those reasons, yeah. like, for pre-preparation kind of thing and i can yeah i yeah i can see how um people are put off early on in their career by the problems that lie ahead because the i find there are many problems there are problems there are yeah. many big problems in the academic system but at the same time i think if you are really interested in research and really interested in this career um I think it's a healthier approach for your own mental health to not worry about the problems before you actually encounter them um, because things might be different at the point when you encounter them or um, there will be other ways around it. So at the same time... I you do have to, yeah, be aware of yeah. things and be, like, do plan stuff. Like, I mean, this yeah. is... Don't be you oblivious You also have to be conscious. Don't be oblivious, exactly. We're not saying naivety. We're just saying don't overestimate how hard it will yeah. be either if you don't yeah so um oh, we're not saying professor dean is saying yeah dean professor dean so that's uh dame caroline dean um and yeah you and she's currently at the john innes center yeah from the john in she's uh, in the center she's still there she's a pi there and we'll put a link to the interview with her um in the show notes so you can read for yourself it's a very nice interview and that brings us to the next section which is the bias I always want to do something with like bye 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 from is it NSYNC or Backstreet Boys? Handsome? 
No, no, no. It's it's no. one of it's it's either the Justin Timberlake band or the Backstreet Boys. Um, what about the Bye Bye Birdie Birdie Goodbye? This song. I bye, don't bye, know that bye, song. Bye bye goodbye bye bye. No. Okay, now we're getting sued, and my singing is terrible, <laughs> and I apologize. Um, so today it's my turn to look at the cognitive bias codex, which you can all find as an interactive map on Wikipedia.com. Um, so the bias it's that the I talk. chose today. <laughs> Why? Why do you do this to me? Why do you make me hate you? It must be precise um, what we do here. Every single word counts. <laughs> Nothing that we say is precise. And actually now you've, I mean, I'm going to blame you, but I actually have unclicked my my page that I want to look at. So the bias that I chose today is a really simple one. It's called rhyme as reason effect. Um, also known as the Eaton Rosen phenomenon. And it's it is very easy. It's basically that when you say something, it is often judged to be more accurate if you say it in rhyme. <laughs> yeah. So the basic experiment is that subjects were asked to judge um, variations of a saying and they had one option of the saying which didn't rhyme and one that did rhyme. And it turns out that they tended to think that the one that rhymed was just more truthful. <laughs> yeah. um, so the statement they used is what sobriety conceals alcohol reveals and apparently that is more truthful than what sobriety conceals alcohol unmasks um which obviously is the same thing and it's kind of this idea of like it sounds like it's an adage it sounds like it's a like old-fashioned saying that's been passed down as wisdom from the ages um and therefore must be true um but i wanted to also mention this one just because it has a link to um the keats heuristic i think it is um which is the idea that a statement's truth is evaluated based on its aesthetic aesthetic qualities and to me this is something that i think is really a bit problematic sometimes because often aesthetic qualities when it comes to language can be based on somebody's country of origin basically whether they were privileged enough in our current english speaking scientific society to have been born in a english as a first language country and i have seen this firsthand myself um, and i think it's something that happens quite commonly where we because of our inherent bias can judge people to be less intelligent based on their lower command of a language even though that language command has no relationship to the skill that they are actually should be being judged on. Um, so this is something to, th I think, keep in mind when you see science is that you shouldn't judge the quality of the science based on the quality of the English. I mean, obviously we need to communicate in science. This is true. And it's good to have people being able to communicate their results and being able to communicate their, their words. But if somebody has an let's say, Canadian accent and you don't like Canadian accents, that's not a reason to think that their science is worse. Yeah. Like, Yoram has a German accent and every now and then he says Darth Vader instead of Darth Vader. Uh, what? I don't but have an accent. <laughs> but I do not do that. I don't know what you're speaking about. Uh, um, yeah. Well, <laughs> My English is very the, egg, the yellow of the egg, I have to say. <laughs> Uh, no, it is not the yellow of the egg, but it goes. <laughs> um, anyway, so I think, yeah, Rhymer's reason is the, the cognitive bias, but it extends to this idea of beautiful language being objectively better, which it not, it's not necessarily the case. Just be aware of the bias and 
as always, don't be a dick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and they have an example in the Wikipedia page of when this was used um, in a real life situation. And it's um, a signature phrase that was used by um, the lawyer of O.J. Simpson in his acquittal trial. So the the lawyer said, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. And that kind of became a bit of a, an adage that got incorporated. So, yeah. yeah. I myself wish I could be witty enough to say everything in rhyme from now no, on. So I'm very happy you're not very, able very to do wise. that. <laughs> I yeah. find that very annoying. That's what I I, I struggled a lot. Um, we re, we read in in school we um, like great German poets and there's Goethe that's probably also known outside of Germany. Um, and he wrote the the play Faust and it's all in rhyme, but it's very basic rhymes. <laughs> so like any basic '90s rap artist has better rhymes than what Goethe did back then. So. To me, it just reads very tedious and very annoyingly um, to to go through like the plot points all in rhyme and so have like words that you don't need there just to to have like the same rhyme. And I know probably people like who know something about literature will hate me for this, but I I couldn't take this seriously. I f I found this extremely annoying <laughs> to to read um but, is, but i think there's is what you're reading was it supposed to be a play yeah it, it's a it's a play like the whole thing is a theater i mean piece. that's the thing i think like so this is the same with shakespeare like when you read shakespeare it's kind of frustrating i mean it's also in very old english so it doesn't really make logical it's it's not it's not clear and then the rhyming is off but then when you see it performed it is very beautiful and it does i found shakespeare it, always I mean, nicer to read than i found goethe to read um But also, like... That's because you're a snob and... You no, Shakespeare is just better. Um, I don't think Shakespeare... I mean, Shakespeare better. did have more penis penis jokes in it, probably. And I actually more, don't know more, anything about Goethe, but... And he wasn't... I mean, probably also as well. It's just all about sex, isn't it? Yeah, I mean... Filthy, <coughs> filthy man. Goethe, the, 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 sorry, Faust is mostly about an old guy talking with the devil so he can seduce a young lady that's not of age. So um, it's pretty much... It's, it's a pedophile who literally speaks to the devil... And somehow he's the good guy in the thing. Um, yeah, but the Taming of the Shrew also has some kind of violence against women things that are going yeah. on there that are similarly <laughs> unideal. I like how we're like... You know, guys, it was a time. <laughs> talking about literature where at least I know very little about it, but... <laughs> I know so little. I mean, I, I quite like... Like, I did some Shakespeare English lit and I, I'm very excited that now I'm in London and I can go and see a play at the Globe and, you know... Mm -hmm. You get to go in like the mosh pit, which is like in the globe when all the poor people like you had to be rich to have a seat. So there'd be like a a, a mosh area at the front. So I think I'm going to do that sometime in the summer and yeah. pretend I'm cultured. Yeah. I think I might try to pick up a British accent as well this year, yeah. like, just for the fun of it. You know? I'm all for it. I, I, <laughs> I value the science presented in an English accent much higher than the science presented in an Australian accent. <laughs> I mean, I think... And if you would yeah, then start to rhyme it, you're not <laughs> then I would uh, believe every single word you say, <laughs> as opposed to now. I do declare, <laughs> my good sir. Yeah, the last thing I wanted to mention about the rhyme is reason effect is that um, it's linked to these, like, uh, the Keats heuristic and also the, the fluency heuristic um, where languages and statements of, uh, or the uh, statements are valued according to the aesthetic qualities. And to me, it, it reminded me of the the idea of the Occam's razor where you when you have multiple possibilities for a solution the simplest one is usually the true one 
based on this principle of Occam's razor. And here now it looks like you have several statements and you misunderstand Occam's razor to take the most beautiful statement as the true one. Um, so There is beauty yeah. and simplicity though, you are. Uh-huh. There is beauty and simplicity though, Yeah, are. I mean, that's the, that's the best one. Both come together. But uh, <laughs> according to this bias, um, there's sometimes that's sometimes not the case. I think with that, we are through um, with a segment. And now we give back to our past selves to talk about fun stuff. Um, mm. And I don't, yeah. <laughs> don't listen to those dicks. Past Tegan was a dick. She didn't do the washing up for, comment, for current Tegan. Yeah, I also I I hate Past Yoram for messing up yesterday's recording. Um, I don't think you messed anything up, dude. I think there was just like a glitch in the matrix and it didn't record in the end. Uh, yeah, yeah. I I used a, a newer version. Uh, it's too much technical details, but anyway, um, there was probably some <laughs> human mean, input Yoram, in there. Um, for f- Yoram is being very very um humble because literally every single time we do this like every week or every couple of weeks and every time we do it i have to like video him and show him my tiny little switch button and say oh which button do like i've always pressed some button in the meantime <laughs> or like switch to di- I, I don't even know how i do it i think like maybe the cat comes in and changes things while i sleep but <laughs> every time you calmly and patiently re-explain to me how to set up a very basic system so. yeah yay Yaron. <clears throat> yeah that's all right back to the past back to the past back to the past back to the Um, I have a cool thing which is now a couple of weeks old because we're recording later than we intended to. So this news came out on, um, I think, the 5th of January, somewhere around the start of January. And it's basically just that Francis Arnold, who is an American chemical engineer and also a winner of the Nobel Prize, really big name in her field, recently retracted a paper. Mm -hmm. And when she retracted the paper, she did it in a very open way. So she tweeted about it and wrote, for my first work-related tweet of 2020, I am totally bummed to announce that we have to retract last year's paper on et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And she said that the work has not been reproducible and that's the reason that they were going to retract the paper. Mm -hmm. And yeah, she kind of acknowledged it and then followed up and said, hey, this sucks. I don't want to have to say this, but unfortunately... I screwed up. I should have checked the paper better. I should have made sure that everything worked. I think there was a problem that they realized that the the data in the lab book um, from the first author didn't really match what they had in the paper. So there were some like mismatches and some missing mm-hmm. missing information. So they made the retraction, but then she came out about it on Twitter. You can see it at Francis Arnold. Um, and the response was really, really positive. So a lot of scientists came out saying, yes, this is what we need. We need that we can retract papers. Mm. And do it in an honest way and say, look, I screwed up because that's much, much better than a situation where we don't retract things because we're scared of the repercussions. Because, yeah, yeah, if we're not retracting bad science, then science is just missing out, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I saw somewhere on the side, um, I saw the story about this, but I didn't, yeah, I didn't know the details. Um, so, yeah, I I also think it's very important to have, uh, yeah, have this 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 culture of errors and mistakes that you know how to deal with them without immediately 
um, going against the person who made a mistake, uh, discrediting all of their other work and so on, because everybody makes mistakes, even Nobel Prize winners can make mistakes. Um, and as soon uh, as long as you are transparent and open with it and uh, your approach to it, uh, I think it's, yeah, it's fine. It's, it's actually good to acknowledge these things that they happen. And just as I mentioned, that paper that was retracted was published in Science, which is one of the biggest papers in the field. Very, mm. very um, high impact, important. So it's it's a big thing to do this as well. So, yeah. Well done, Dr. Arnold. Professor Arnold, <coughs> I would assume. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, my next my next fun fact, or my first fun fact. Um, yeah, the thing I want to start with is the high-throughput DIY hydroponics for Arabidopsis made from tip boxes. I found this on Twitter. Um, obviously, of, of course, I closed the tab now where I had the name. Um, the tweet is from Magdalena Yulkowska, um, and she wrote on protocols.io, which is a platform where, where researchers can share protocols in an open way um, that they came up with in the lab or that they optimized and so on. Um, she made... A hydroponic system for uh, for Arabidopsis from tip boxes. So I went through the, the description step by step. You you cut off the tips of the tip boxes and then you fill them with agar and then you have a nutrient solution below that they sort of sit on um, and take up from 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 below. And then this way you can grow hundreds of seedlings individually very quickly, um, mm -hmm. which is important. She did that for RNA sec. Um, where yeah you need lots and lots of different of individual plants for her um, experiment and i just found the idea so cool that she crafted this whole system herself which probably if you would buy a commercial arabidopsis hydroponic system would be hundreds and thousands of dollars and um, actually in the lab you have so many tip boxes available uh, i think it's a very smart move to use those uh, for a hydroponic system I have also tried growing Arabidopsis in tip boxes before, um, mm -hmm. not with hydroponics, just with soil, because I was trying to do imaging palm, which is a photosynthetic measurement technique, and I was growing them on agar originally, and it was just too reflective, so it was um, creating chaos with these light capturing um, mm. methods. So I tried using a tip box because I thought the plastic of the tip box would prevent there from being reflection or um, noise from the soil or the, the media underneath. Mm. Um, didn't work in the end, but... Yeah, <laughs> well done. <laughs> it's good that one worked. Yeah. So no, that's really cool. Yeah. So that's my little fun fact. I should go on. Yeah, you should um, go on. <laughs> this is how oh, we usually that? do this, Tegan. Like uh, thirty-two go, episodes I go, in, I, I explain you. We usually do this in an alternating way. I feel way. like we're more disjointed than normally. Like maybe the distance of the ocean between us is making our conversation less flowy. <laughs> maybe more, it okay. is that, or maybe it's just that we're both tired. <laughs> We're always both tired, though you are. Like That's just true. always. Um, okay, really quickly. <coughs> I hope you've all already seen this. There was the Chinese scientist whose name is He Jiangqi. He uh, might have edited some babies with CRISPR-Cas9 last year, and at the start of this year, they announced, or maybe at the very end of last year, they announced that he has got sentenced to three years in jail. So, mm -hmm. a lot more discussions happening around the ethics of using CRISPR-Cas9 on babies. There's a Russian researcher who has now come out saying that he has plans or has already begun doing more CRISPR-Cas9 on other human embryos. But I guess this is a debate that's going to continue a lot in the next year or many years, probably. Yeah, but, I, I um, think this is a can of worms that has been opened now. Um, and it will be really hard to deal with that as a society. Yeah. 
Something a bit nicer. I saw on um, Nature Briefing a again probably at the start of the month. Um, yeah, sixth of January. The oh, a story about the Australian National University, which was one of the big universities in my country, returning hundreds of vials of blood that was collected fifty years ago um, from a indigenous community um, on Elko Island, so just an island off the coast of northern Australia. So they basically. Uh, repatriated these blood samples because, um, <clears throat> excuse me, there was not informed consent when they obtained the blood samples, and now they're trying to um, discuss with relatives or or whoever's around still about their ability to have any DNA samples or or, or biological information. And again, this is something which has come up in in previous years. So, I think probably a lot of you know already the story of Gila, which is this famous um, cancer cell culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's a cell line used in cancer research. It's an immortal cell line, and it's originally taken from Henrietta Lacks. And Henrietta Lacks was a, a woman, a black woman, who died of cancer, and her sample of cells was taken and used without her consent, without her knowledge, and without her family's um, consent. And I think there's a book called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks or something like that. Um, yes, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, um, which discusses this. But that in itself then led to a discussion about what right we as individuals have to our own genetic material, um, especially in the case where it could be discarded genetic material. So she herself had stuff removed, um, this tissue was removed, but whether or not that gives the doctors or the scientists the right to use her tissue and use her, literally her cells. Um, so this is kind of all part of a um, a discussion that's happened for some years now. And of course, it's particularly concerning when the samples are being taken from minority communities it becomes much more of a, an ethical issue i would argue than mm. um just kind of standard operations yeah yeah okay um i have something now from um from the for the <laughs> you said an edit mark here. Yeah, I cut all of this out and say no. Okay, I leave it in. Then um, it's sorry, listeners. Uh, it's this is all live to tape, um, <laughs> apart from like the technical mistake that happened before. <laughs> I really hope that uh, I didn't lose the recording. But if you listen to this episode, dear listener, then I didn't lose the recording. If you don't, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a story about uh, um, the investigation of horizontal gene transfer, um, how that helped uh, for algae and in turn in la- plants to to conquer the lands. Um, there has been a study. Um, actually, I didn't look up who who did that. I think. I think it was in North Carolina, but I, I might have gotten that wrong. But there's on Science Mac, there's a story about this um, where um, they investigated different uh, algae lines and looked at the different genes that are that are there to figure out in the transition phase from uh, when the pl- uh, algae were marine and became uh, also um, soil-based algae, what happened in the genes there. And they could find gene families there that uh, are only present in soil bacteria usually and then they did some tests to make sure that the the sequences that they had they were not contaminated with bacteria because Mm -hmm. that's that is the most likely cause usually but they could find adjacent uh, plant sequences on the same um, stretch of dna that they sequenced so they, they knew this gene was in a plant genome 
mm-hmm. then they figured out that these genes that are related to um, uh, desiccation tolerance and um, dealing with um, drought stress and so on, that these came from uh, from soil bacteria that uh, conquered the lands before the algae did. So sort of the bacteria evolved these, these traits before and then through horizontal gene transfer, these genes were then moved into the algae. The algae could c- come to the land and then uh, evolve further and then become the land plants that we know today. So all, all of this, like we... Uh, plants couldn't have left the ocean really if it wouldn't be for the evolution of the soil bacteria before um, that then transferred their genes uh, into the plant genomes or into the algae genomes. I think um, we've done a similar story on the blog at one stage that you wrote about, Yoram, um, mm-hmm. about some ferns that stole some genes to deal with desiccation stress, maybe. Uh, also that, horizontal gene transfer. That, that it seems like be. it's something that happens somewhat commonly in that yeah yeah, organisms steal genes from other organisms and they keep the ones that help them survive right so then you get this selection of cool traits yeah and now like the ones that are crucial points during evolution are the ones that we can more easily uh, find but uh yeah it's it's to me rather certain that this happens uh, fairly fr- frequently on an evolutionary timescale. So it doesn't happen that every day um, a houseplant takes up a, a bacterial gene and grows completely differently from then on and suddenly can grow outside of the pot. Um, but on an evolutionary timescale, I think these events are rather common. Mm. Yeah. Do you have another uh, fun fact? I do. I've lost it, though. I have like 40 um, tabs open on my computer and I just cannot find. Uh, I did want to make a kind of comment about um, impossible foods. So Uh there was an announcement that came out. I don't know if it was today or a few days ago. um, I think a few days ago that Impossible Burger will make some more products. They're going to try to make a plant-based pork. So if you don't know Impossible Burger, Impossible is a company which is making alternative meat products, which are not meat. They're all plant-based. Um, but they're imitation meat, mm-hmm. um, suitable for vegetarians. Impossible Burger is a bit of an interesting case because there's two main companies that I know of. One is Beyond Burger and one is Impossible Burger. And Impossible Burger actually uses GMOs to make their burgers. So they they um, have taken a heme-producing enzyme from legumes, so from pea roots, and they've then... <laughs> Sorry, oh my I, I did something wrong. Uh, I'm playing a game with me on Facebook Messenger while no, I'm trying I, to talk. I thought it was a face filter with you. a burger. I wanted to add like something fitting, a face filter with a burger. Sorry. Okay, so for the Impossible Burger, they've taken this gene, which produces genes from legume roots. The gene produces heme. Heme is like a bloody thing. And then they've made a ton of heme in bioreactors by placing this gene into yeast. And then the yeast makes all of the heme. And then they can basically harvest that heme and incorporate it into their burgers. And that gives the burger a really nice bloody texture and taste and Mm. feel. We don't know about this because we live in Europe and GMOs are absolutely banned. So we've never tried it. But my friend has tried it in the US and said it is absolutely delicious. Anyway. Now I'm hungry. Now I'm hungry. The point is um, Impossible Burger has now extended um, to making other products. And I just wanted to make a quick comment that in the last couple of weeks and months, I've started to see a lot of pushback against vegetarian lifestyles, alternative meat products, um, which is 
in my opinion, possibly or almost definitely coming from lobbying from these industries. So when I was in Stockholm, maybe six months or almost a year ago, there was huge ads on the bus shelters, which basically showed bowls of cereals with people pouring Coca-Cola, for example, onto the cereal with the phrase, there's no alternative for milk. Also in the EU, it's now prohibited to use the word milk for plant-based milks. They have to be called, I don't know, juices, which just really sounds fucking horrible. Like, I'm going to put some oats juice on my cereal. Yeah, yeah they, they come up with like fake words for it. Um, like yeah, milk I like the word, or, I like nilk with an N because it's not yeah. milk, so nilk and it sounds the same. Yeah. Anyway, um, so there's a lot of pushback against these um, vegetarian and vegan alternatives. And I've also started to hear a lot of things which I believe to be fake science. So Science Versus is a podcast um, which has done a a nice episode about veganism and whether it's worth it, kind of discussing, for example, these these different milks. You should check that out. But just be aware that there's a lot of money behind these industries. So you can decide that you don't want to drink oat milk. That's fine. You can decide that you think that the idea of a fake meat burger is disgusting. That's fine. But just be careful. I've seen some stuff on, online which is really written as propaganda in my opinion. So discussions about how burgers are really terrible because they have as many calories as a meat burger and therefore not a health option, which is, I mean, if you didn't have many calories, then people would complain, oh, it's calorically empty and people are going to get ice. You don't have to pro them, you don't have to be against them. Just be aware that look at the science don't just look at like weird puff pieces or propaganda or paid advertisements which are supporting the the milk and the meat industries because yeah i mean if people eat less meat and drink less milk it's probably better for the world there's many arguments that it's better for the world from just a global emissions yeah. perspective for for many many reasons water <coughs> land use um carbon yeah, All and I want to things. I want to add there that you also find a lot of uh, fake science about the um, carbon footprint of these products. Like they try exactly. to tell you that um, the the soy that is grown that is uh, destroying um, uh, wild uh, what's the word now uh, rainforests rainforest um, mm -hmm. that the transport of it and the, the manufacturing and all of that would. Um, uh, result in tons of uh, carbon dioxide emissions and so on and while it is true that there is rainforests that are being destroyed to plant soy most of this soy like literally 90 percent or more of this soy goes into animal fodder so this is <laughs> not soy for human consumption but is the the rainforests are destroyed so that we can grow uh, animals with it and um, the co2 emissions while they do exist um, and have to be considered they are still much less than the co2 equiv equivalents emitted by animal and by animals this is why I recommend the Science Versus podcast. Go and check out this episode. It's only about 20 minutes long, but um, it's, it's Wendy Zuckerman, I think. Um, it's really well researched. If you want to look into the details, the data behind it, they always put hundreds, like literally hundreds of um, links to real scientifically reviewed articles in their show notes so that you can find, like read about the science yourself. But they, they do really lovely breakdowns on a whole lot of topics. And one of the ones they've atta attacked or uh, assessed is... Um, yeah, these alternative milks. And as Yoram said, they say, yes, almonds are bad with, if you compare them to oats and you look at water. Like almonds use much more water um, 
than oats. But it's still less water than if you're going to be drinking cow milk because then you've got to get water to grow the crops that the cow eats and you've also got to get water for the cow and et cetera, et cetera. So just go and have a look into it. And again, you don't have to want to eat meat-free burgers. You don't want to have to drink milk, but just don't start repeating all of this random lobby-based propaganda without first going and reading stuff for yourself. Yeah. Believe my propaganda instead. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, the difference <laughs> no, is that... No, don't trust our, me. Read the science yourself. Uh, yeah, the difference is that we base our stuff on peer-reviewed papers and not just on like hot takes of some... Yeah, but I lie somewhere. all the time for fun. Like, it's fun to... I mean, anyway. There are links to sources of what we're saying in the description. Yeah, read the sources. So... <laughs> Your is just so disappointed in me. No, He's I'm not. He's giving me a look. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's what I expected. I can't be disappointed if it's what I expected. Um... Mm. Do you have some more fun stuff? Because I think, uh, like, I have some stuff, but it's not that fun, and I'd rather end on a cat fact. Uh, I'm done, I and I have no cat fact. So if you've got a cat fact, go oh, for perfect. it. Perfect. Then I'll do that. My cat fact today um, talks about uh, parrots. Parrots. <laughs> uh, parrots are the cats of the of the sky, um, as uh -huh. they say. <laughs> I'm disappointed now. <laughs> no, I, I, li I like birds. I like parrots uh, specifically. And um, there has been a study. Um, we're linking to an article on fist.org. Um, but there is a study that, um, that, that was done, a behavioral study, that shows that African gray parrots um, help each other with no personal benefit. So they put two parrots in, in cages next to each other, plexiglass cages, and they both could exchange tokens for food with a person in, sitting in front of them. But when they would cover, so they both had, both cages had a connection between them, so they could give stuff from one parrot to the other parrot, and the parrots could give stuff from the parrot to the human. Um, and if the researchers would block one parrot's hole to the human, they would give the token over to the other parrot and the parrot would then exchange a token for food that he would eat then um, and they would do that, that in both directions and they would also not feel jealousy even if they would um, the, one of the parrots would give out a token and would get a much better treat than the other parrot would and the, the, the parrot with the worst treat would see that the other one would get for the same action a much better treatment um, and in that respect, they are actually better even than primates and humans, which um, express strong jealousy if they do the same work and somebody else gets for the same work a higher reward. Um, and I, I hypothesize a little bit about why African greys do this, because what, what is the incentive behind doing a selfless act where there is literally no benefit for the, for the individual parrot? Um, because they uh, compared the, did the same experiment with macaws and they didn't have this behavior they wouldn't exchange tokens uh, give the token to the other uh, bird um, and they link that to the size of the flock that they live in the, the uh, african gray parrots they live in very large flocks up to 1500 animals while mm -hmm. the macaws they live in very small communities of 20 to 30 birds so the african grays they need this very high social intelligence and cooperation um to survive like if if you live with that many animals on a closed space um, it is beneficial for the overall health of the community if there's high social intelligence um, and this is their their explanation for why there is why these african gray parrots have this behavior and yeah in the article there's just a few pictures of these cute birds i i really like them i think uh like you should not have them as, as pets because they're too large and too loud for that and they should live in the wild 
but I still enjoy seeing these birds. Um, uh, and also we should learn something from them. Yeah, be less jealous. Like if you have enough for yourself, don't be angry if somebody else gets for the same work a little bit more. Unless they're like super rich and they're taking away stuff from others. But if you look at your neighbor and they do similar yeah, work... Yeah, be angry then, at the rich. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, be angry at the rich. But don't be angry at your neighbor for um, having a little bit nicer stuff than, than you have if both of you have enough stuff. Um, unless that, he has more cats. Cause yeah, unless unless cats. it's cats, obviously. Be very jealous obviously. and very angry at any person that has more cats than you have. So Tegan is very angry at me because I have uh, one more cat than she has. So um, I have like half a cat, I would say, because like most of the time the cat is not my friend. <laughs> it is your friend. It doesn't show it yet. But yeah. all cats are your friend, Tegan. All cats are all our friends. <laughs> they yeah. just don't know it yet. I have a friend to all the kitties. <laughs> uh, I think it's time to go, Yara. Yeah, I think it's time to go... Um, We've been, I actually have no idea how long we've been recording um, because of a small glitch. Um, but I think it was long enough. I'm very happy that we're back for this year with more podcast episodes and just try to remember now what we always say in the end. Uh, rate us. Be nice to us. <laughs> on iTunes. And uh, follow us on all of the social media. That's what I usually say. Yeah. yeah. Follow so us on, on Twitter. <laughs> That's where you talk to me at Plants per Pets. On Instagram and on Facebook, we're at Plants and Pipettes. There you talk to me usually. Um, we also have a blog. We have a blog um, with lots of new posts coming up. Um, Plantsandpipettes.com. www.plantsandpipettes.com. Um, check it out every week. Uh, we have two new posts coming up there. You can also find a way to support us there, um, which would be greatly appreciated if you want to do such a thing. Um, you can leave comments under this episode and under all of our blog posts. That is also highly appreciated if you yeah, want to let us comments, know stuff. With social animals like macaws, yeah. leave us comments. Um, give us tokens. <laughs> give us tokens that we can exchange for food. <laughs> <laughs> I like food. <laughs> I also London like food. London is so expensive. I like food. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to have a little bit of bird seed right now. <laughs> um, um, probably good for digestion. Our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And that's it. And goodbye. Goodbye. Yay. I <laughs> do the baby geniuses <laughs> thing. Oh my goodness, stop stealing from the other podcast. It's getting embarrassing at this point. But it's such a good podcast. I like baby geniuses. Oh, it's so good. I just It makes me happy every time I hear it. Yeah. I wish they would do more stuff, but at the same time, I'm happy they do just as much as they're comfortable with. So yeah. I know that it won't be, like it won't, wear itself out too quickly when Lisa Hannawalt was talking about how they cancelled Tuka and Birdie I was so sad I yeah. just that's just uh. yeah and then I felt really guilty because I hadn't watched all of them yet and no like, I watched all of fault. them and I actually watched some of them twice already I think it, it was an amazing show and it was, it's a bloody shame that it, this got cancelled and something you know the thing where she was like it was the only female created yeah. adult Cut, like uh, adult um yeah cartoon it's called yeah yeah or animated series it's insane yeah. right like yeah yeah keep angry 